welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that that starts with recapping and discussing the entire series, one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through a lens of anti-oppression, anti-racism, and pro-diversity. I'm Ruthie Kaupersamoshi. And my name is Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about The Last Outpost. This episode was written by Herbert Wright and Richard Kruzemian and Tracy Torme, and directed by Richard A. Cola. It first aired on October 17th, 1987. For our check-in this week, uh, this episode touches on issues of nationalism and how we create our identities in a sort of roundabout way. Um... So we can create identities through the countries we come from or communities that we're a part of, but that can also be harmful when we identify really strongly with a community, um, so strongly that any criticism of that group feels like a personal attack on us. So what are some ways that we can create our own identities that don't rely on communities that we're a part of? What do you think, Matt? So that's a good question. Um, Yeah, I think sometimes what happens is our... Like if we attach our identity to something out there in the universe that is then criticized or critique, it can feel like a personal attack, mm-hmm. right? So um, I know like I know members of my family like really identify with being Canadian. Um, I've never really found that. Like to me personally, I'm like, well, like Canada as a nation uh, has some really great parts. Um, you know, there's certainly like, uh, I have a lot of, I enjoy a lot of freedoms as an individual The you know, Canada has a focus on like healthcare. Um, and I get to, I get to have that as a privilege to be living in the society. But I know that our country also has a really dark history and hasn't really reconciled that very well. And so I think it's important to have those conversations. And I think if you get too tied to a thing, then maybe, maybe you start to be less critical of it. That makes sense, right? I guess it's yeah. not. It's not brilliant in any way. I guess we all kind of know that, but yeah, yeah, no, totally. I think I mean that's that's kind of that's kind of it, right? And it's it comes up really weirdly in this episode, and we'll we'll get to that as uh, as it comes up. But I think that I would like to think that if this episode were written today, those aspects of it would look very different because I think we're more willing to be critical of our own histories than maybe we were, or I mean, I say we, and that's a really broad, like, who, who do I mean by we? I mean, the people that I spend my time with and the people that I have in my life are much more willing to be critical of their histories and sort of reckon with um, problems in in their history or histories of communities that they're a part of uh, than I saw in the 80s and 90s, but then I was quite young in the 80s and 90s. So maybe there were people around who were just as willing to be critical and I just wasn't aware. Um, Do you think, is that is that primarily nationalism you're thinking of there? I mean, I think that there's some, some community ties are really important, right? And I think that like, like, obviously, like we're, again, we're recording this during a time where there's, there's like, um, riots and protests going on um, around the world, yeah. primarily centered in the United States. Yeah. But I think people are, in that case, are trying to defend their communities. They're trying to protect their communities. They're trying to say that their communities have been subject to violence and state oppression for like a long time, and they want to collectively help their communities. Absolutely. And I think there's a certain amount of privilege that is, as always, important to keep in mind when you're looking at this kind of thing. Because I think that 
I mean, nationalism is a big one for sure. When when I when I think of like problems with that, this kind of like community based identity, I think nationalism is maybe one of the biggest. I also see it in terms of like interest groups or like even fans of television shows and like you know you you become a fan of we can I think use Star Trek as an example you know if if you're a fan of Star Trek that shouldn't mean that you can never criticize Star Trek and that any criticism of Star Trek is a personal attack and I think that that happens in like fandom communities as well um I think a big difference is when People are sort of connecting and forming community on the basis of like shared marginalization or like shared life experiences that others don't have. Like personally, I have found a lot of comfort and joy in creating community, like being part of queer communities that I mm-hmm. don't, that I, I wouldn't have if if I was only spending time with cis straight people. So like, like, I think that community is really important in that. And I think there's a side of community that can be like, mis misused. Does that make sense? Yeah, the last the last couple episodes, I, we, we ended up going on to, um, or we included some conversation on like belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think belonging is like definitely tied to identity. And, and maybe what happens is when people have the thing that they belong to is challenged, they're afraid of being disconnected from a thing. You know, like if I, if my, if a big part of my identity is my country and then my country is criticized, then what do I belong to anymore? Yeah. Right. Or is the thing that I belong to good anymore? I think I could throw someone into an existential crisis almost. Yeah. Um, like I think about my own journey. Like when I was younger, I was more directly tied to like a church community. Um, I'm not anymore. Spirituality is still a big part of my life, but it's transformed like significantly since then. But when that transformation happened, it was like a big crisis of faith. Right. And that faith is, you know, it doesn't have to be a spiritual faith. It can be like a faith in your country or a faith in, you know, the cultural group you belong to or a faith in some kind of tradition. And so if it gets called out, then, yeah, that can result in like a crisis of faith. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I, I can understand why then people would so violently defend a thing, because otherwise, like, it might require you to go through a transformation that maybe you're just not ready for. I think... I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people that are just not ready or they don't feel like they can make the leap that some people are asking them to make. Yeah. And it's – that is not an excuse, by the way. I don't no. want to say that I think that Yeah. I feel like it, it's important to say, like, it's it's our job to get ready. <laughs> like, yeah. um, we we – we can those of us who are in positions of relative privilege, like thinking about um, anti-black racism, those of us who are not black and don't face anti-black racism, like it's our job to get ready to deal with the with those criticisms. And I think we all and and by and and in saying that it's not an excuse, it's that I, I say that because I think that we do have the resources to change. And so then it comes down to a question of like, do you want to? Like, that's the thing. Like, do you want to keep turning an eye away from the existence of the, I think a big one is right now that everyone doesn't, like, we're trying to put our thumb on it, but people are resisting, is the existence of white supremacy in our societies. Like, people just don't want to acknowledge that that is a thing. Um, Primarily because I think either consciously or subconsciously, it means that they all have to give up some of, of the benefits of enjoying that that privilege over the rest of society yeah, um, or acknowledging the ways that they have benefited from it personally. Yeah. And I would say also like 
so you and I are both in Canada and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of noise right now about like, you know, this is something happening in uh, the States and Canada's not like that. And a lot of pushback against that, that nope, Canada has a white supremacy problem as well, right? And and Canada has anti-Black racism, Canada has anti-Indigenous racism. And we can't, I think a big, for a long time, a big part of Canadian identity was the idea that we're not American. Like that was one of the best things about being Canadian is that we are better than the U.S. And, you know, when you when your identity is so based on on the fact that you're better than someone else, that I think then you you have a tendency to stop doing the work. <laughs> and um, or I mean, in Canada's case, I, I suppose it's quite likely that we weren't ever doing that work. And so so we, we can't just say, well, at least we're not as bad as that. We need to look actually at what's going on and say, okay, let's do better. Yeah, I think that might be inadvertently exacerbated by progressives in the US as well, because often even they will hold up Canada's example and say, like, we're going to move to Canada or Canada, please come invade us or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And you're like, well, actually, we still have like a lot of issues when it comes to racism in our country. Yeah. And I think these things have not gone away. Um, you know, our own our own police forces still have a history of violent repression against um, against people in our own country as well. Yeah. And so... Um, and so, yeah, I, and I think that that does come from a place of nationalism. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so then then how can we, I mean, uh, <laughs> this might be a little bit on the spot, but I mean, what are some ways that, what are some ways that you construct your identity? Like, how do you define yourself in ways that are not communities that you're a part of or, um, you know, places where you're from? Yeah, that's, a, you know, I've been... <laughs> I was thinking that as we were having this conversation, I was like, if I were asked that question, what, what would I say? Um, I I don't even know if I'm entirely certain. I, I think this has been an ongoing thing for me through my life. Um, I think it was a big part, like I've been, so I've been working on a documentary for a while called Chasing Atlantis, yeah. as you know. Yeah. Um, I think a big part of that film has been that search. Like, where do I... Where do I fit? Where do I connect myself? And that has always been set against the backdrop of space. And for me, that's always served as a really great analogy because if you put the planet in context, we're always kind of asking, like, where do we belong in this grand universe, right? Um, and in addition, like, when we set out as a, as a civilized – well, as individuals, we're kind of always trying to figure out where we fit in and where we belong. We're kind of basically asking, like, am I alone? And that is the question that we're also asking of the universe. You know, are we alone? This search for life. You know, the SETI program is that. It's like we're listening for other civilizations and then um, hoping that someday we'll get a message, you know, from something that's maybe like us or very different, but still has some overlap and similarity. I would like to think that if we find another civilization out there, that at the very least... Um, you know, if they're also looking for life, that maybe something that's at least one common thread through all life in the universe is that it's curious, mm -hmm. you know, that it wants to learn, it wants to be connected. Um, and so for me, like, I've been, I guess, a place where I feel connected is in these wider conversations about the universe and the fact that we all came from it. Right. And that might be really general. I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's like, if that's like the easy answer then. But for me, that's been, that's been a big thing. Like when I... When I talk about 
um, when I talk about wanting to you know, break down, um, you know, attacking white supremacy, breaking down racial barriers, like trying to to create unity between us and justice and and equity. For me, in the back of my head, a lot of that thing, a lot of that, those ideas come from that notion that we're all created from the cosmos. We literally, like, it's my body and your body and someone else's body might have all been atoms boiling together inside of the same star somewhere. And I find that really profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? I, I mean, it's funny. Like, I feel like I don't know that you, f- I, I can't say, I, I literally don't know whether you fully answered the question, um, but I'm not going to, like, hold that against you because I don't know that I could answer it either. Like, for for me, a lot of, um, so I work as a teacher and I've done that for quite a while now. And it that was always what I wanted to do. There was never any like doubt in my mind. Anytime I tried anything that was like closely related to teaching, like it just always felt right. So, and then when I started doing it, I was like, yep, for sure, this is what I want to do. Um, anytime I've sort of come away from teaching, like I did, uh, like I was, I worked as a guidance counselor for a couple of years and I, I found I really missed teaching. So, um, so there's a part of me that's like, that's a big part of my identity, but, but also it's not because like, you know, I, I think I would still, I mean, I, I, since the, um, since we've been dealing with this pandemic, I haven't been teaching. Um, and I'm still me. I haven't gone through, like, I haven't lost my sense of who I am based on that. I think that, like, having your identity be being wrapped up really tightly with your job can, I feel like at best, it can lead to, like, an unhealthy work-life balance. Um, I saw something, this was a few years ago, I saw it on like Instagram. I can't, I can't attribute it because I don't know who it was. Um, but it was like that saying that's like, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Like that saying, right. but it was like crossed out. It was like, do what you love and you'll like work round the clock 24 seven because you'll never yeah, have any drive boundaries. Yourself nuts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so I sort of feel like, like I don't feel comfortable saying that that's like a, a big part of my identity. Um, I also think like, like that can have pretty dire consequences as well. Like when you have people responding to the phrase black lives matter by saying blue lives matter. And like, that's, that's not, that's not okay. Like that's no, you can take off your blue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you chose to put it on and you can take it off. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I think as you were talking, one thing that kind of occurred to me was maybe the way that that I can feel comfortable like describing myself or defining myself is like through adjectives. So you were talking about like curiosity that like life, maybe the thing that all life will have in common is like that it's curious. And like, so maybe that's, so that's an adjective, right? So maybe, yeah, like how, who am I? Well, I am a curious person. I am a loving person i am uh i you know like 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 adjectives rather than like this is a sentence that just that that explains me or this is a thing that i am but these are these are things that that describe me instead maybe the best we can hope to do is describe rather than define 
Yeah. And, and, you know, and I also like I, I'm thinking about it, I might need to acknowledge that some ways that I choose to or don't choose to identify might also be like an indication of my privilege. Right. Like, for example, I don't think about my whiteness very much, but that's because society doesn't make me. Yes. Yeah, that's really right? important. Um, so then I was going to ask you, like, um, so would you do you think that if society hadn't pushed back against the LGBTQ community as much as it has, that that would still be as large a part of your identity? Great question. Um, And it's also something that's like been... um, Like, I guess I'm asking, like, how much of identity is imposed upon us by society in that way? I think a lot of it is. I mean, I also think like... Um, so this is just speaking from my own experience. I definitely don't want to say that this is universally true by any means, Mm -hmm. but like, so for me, my gender has always been like a bit of a question mark. Like I, people read me as like a girl or a woman and I, I'm not like, that's never been something that I've like strongly identified with. Um, and, and so I've, I've, I've wondered like if, if the gender binary weren't so strongly entrenched in society would what would my gender be i don't know yeah (laughs) right and i think that that some people do know right like and i and i don't want to like um erase those experiences because i think that's really important like some people have a gender that they identify very strongly with that's true of trans people that's true of cis people um so i i don't want to say like I'm not, you know, I'm not going to not going to pull any JK Rowling nonsense and say that that uh, those experiences yeah, aren't real, but uh, they they are. But for yeah. me, speaking just for myself, um, that I think was an identity that was largely like put on me and it and and there are ways in which I sort of I, I feel it kind of rub the wrong way. And there are also ways in which I feel it like. Not like fit perfectly, but like, you know, fit okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think, and I, I feel like, yeah, as a, as a queer person, also like, there, <clears throat> part of what I love about queerness and being queer and being part of queer communities is that queer representation and like seeing queer people and interacting with queer people can really help to, can really help us question sort of commonly held beliefs that are sort of touted as truths. So the yeah. idea of like, you know, your your path in life is to fall in love with someone, marry them, live with them, have children with them, grow old together. You know, that that gets kind of thrown apart in a lot of ways by by queer communities. And I mean, that is that is the path that many queer folks take um, because that does work for some of them. Um, but it, it's not the only path. And, and seeing queerness around you can remind you that there are lots of different paths for life, thinking romantically or otherwise. So, yeah, but, but that comes from – I think that that is partly at least a result of having this identity like – put on you and being told that 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 identity is not the right one or not the normal one yeah and then and then even in a process of trying to like reclaim that identity for positive it's still something that becomes core to your beliefs maybe because it's something that's been imposed on society by by society yeah um 
but you know, not necessarily that's good or bad. I think the 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 main point there is that like like you said, and I, I think this is one of the key strengths of diversity or having a diverse diverse culture is that understanding how other people identify it allows you to like find new ways for you to identify. Yeah. Um. You know, like one of the things I really appreciated about learning more about feminism is that it helped me restructure my own relationship to masculinity. And I actually found that really helpful because there were parts of masculinity that I was never like super comfortable with or didn't understand how to integrate into my life. And then it turns out it's because they were actually really toxic. Right. And that that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, that's great. Actually, you know, it's, this isn't a failing, you know, and, and in fun ways it might actually be a lot healthier. Yeah. Yeah. So the Woo. short answer is we don't know how to, how, how we identify but well, I think identity is fluid. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think right? that's, it, it really is. It's it. It always going to be. No, it's always going to be a journey. There's going to be parts and elements of your life that you that are really key to your identity now. They're like, like you know, for me, it was in the past a big part of my identity was being an evangelical Christian. That is not a thing anymore. Right. Um. You know, it's not part of my identity. There are elements of that spirituality that are still a part of my life that are important to me, but the whole structure around that it's it's not anymore. It's 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 not a part of who I am now. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, there. So we've there we you solved have it. everything. <laughs> the end. Do we even need to do this Thank episode? Thank you for anymore? coming to our so. TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> now we're talking about Star Trek. Who knew that Ferengi would catalyze such a deep conversation? Who knew? I mean, you always suspected, didn't you? <laughs> I maybe a little bit. Yeah. All right, so in this episode, the Enterprise makes first contact with the Ferengi, just as both ships get caught in a mysterious force field. Dun, dun, dun. Oh my goodness, and what an episode it is. Yeah, so so we start off with uh, the Enterprise sort of chasing a Ferengi vessel. Um, this is the first time they're going to make contact with this species. We did hear about them in Encounter at Farpoint. Um, mm-hmm. when, that they eat people. Yeah, we heard that they eat people. That's all we really know. I don't think that ever comes up again when we... Think nope. about Ferengis. Um, and when we finally catch up with the ship, Picard is like so impressed with the design. And it like it it looks from like from the back to me, it just looked like a slug. Yeah, I I I can't tell if I like or don't like the Ferengi ship design, the Ferengi Marauder or Mar, Mar, Marauder Marauder Ferengi Marauder. Um, that's, but anyways, yeah. So they get shot at. The yeah, Ferengi start Ferengi shooting shoot at, them. at them, and then the Enterprise is like caught in some kind of force field and power, and the force field is draining power from the from the ship. Yeah, and it, jump to opening credits. Yeah, opening credits. Uh, we come back. We're still on the bridge. Same situation. Troy can't sense the feelings of the Ferengi. This is something yeah, but later, inconsistent. Yeah, but later, she seems like she... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, because she seems to be able to later. Yeah, yeah, within um, the but, same episode. Yeah, it's a little... Yeah, but I think uh, the from here on in, we decide that, like, em, that that empaths can't read Ferengi. Yeah. That's, like, a thing yeah. of them in the future. Yeah. Right. Um. So Data kind of... They, they don't really know a whole lot about the Ferengi, but what they... The information they do have suggests that the Ferengi are basically uh, capitalists, he refers to them as Yankee traders, Data does. Um, yeah. Which Riker thinks sounds good. He's like, oh, I like my forebears. I I like the sounds of that. And Data says, a, he, he makes a, a comment about the American flag. He's like, well, they're not going to be wearing red, white, and blue, which then, like, Picard 
goes on a weird little spiel about how red, white, and blue was the American flag, but the French <laughs> used it as blue, white, and red in the correct way. Yeah, it was kind of a weird... Yeah, it's, a, it's another one of these things where you'd said, like, they kind of dropped Picard's Frenchness like shortly after this. But yeah, it was kind of an... It was just sort of... He has this pride, this French pride. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Yar doesn't even know what the American flag is. Right. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, she, so like she didn't lost grow up on Earth, of right? She grew up on a colony, no. so... And yeah, so those ties to nation and nation state. It's always kind of these things in Star Trek where they, I don't think they've quite decided as to whether or not countries still exist or not. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, it's another one of these things that I try to bring up and I'm in, I'm probably oversimplifying it when I talk about it at the planetarium. But when we're flying people around there and we're like going around the globe, is we say, you know, countries are imaginary. Yeah. They don't actually exist, right? Yeah. This is something that we've constructed. And so when people identify with a country, like, what is it that you actually, what are you identifying with? And not two people are going to say that it's the same thing either, right? Right. Yeah. 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 LaForge and Riker kind of come up with a way to get out of this field. The idea is that, like, it's pulling at, like, a specific rate. And if they they have like a burst of speed that's slightly faster than that. They should be able to get out of it. LaForge is Jordy's really excited. So about excited. This. <laughs> so excited. I think it's kind of foreshadowing as well too, that he's going to end up in this role. I think, I don't know if they knew that or not at this yeah, point. I but don't it's, know. Like, it's clear that he belongs in engineering. He loves engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so they're, they're going to do it. They're all ready to do it. And it just doesn't work at all. It's, it's like, like the fastest letdown. It's like, all right, we got this, ready to go, and it didn't work. And, and Picard says, "Mared." Yeah, I was like, I when you, I read, uh, I read the notes that you'd put ahead of the episode, and then I watched through it. I saw that he said that, and I was like, oh, I was like, no way, really, he swears, <laughs> and he swears in French. Amazing. Yep, it's not even in the Netflix warning. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> well, it's, it's French. That it's like sex, gore, violence, death. It's it's hilarious. The Netflix ratings for Star Trek are so over the top. Yeah, yeah, the most wholesome show. <laughs> Yeah, it's like swearing. Swearing oh, en anyway. français. En français. Um, oh, you could literally say, pardon my French. Yeah, literally, yeah. Literally. Yeah, yeah you're Anyways. right. Uh, yeah, anyway, so so then, uh, so they can't get away, and then someone is, like, hacking into the ship, and I guess they can they can tell this, on the, they, can't, they can't stop this from happening, but they can tell that it's happening. Someone's reading all of the information that they have on the computer, and Troy's like, well, we've been... Play, we've been paying so much attention to this Ferengi vessel, uh, and we haven't actually noticed or like paid attention to this planet that we just happened to be. I don't. Know, are they orbiting? I guess they are. They're, they're stuck yeah. beside this planet. Um, I, that's. I love Troy for that. I yeah. love the Troy. Like they. I mean, I think their use of her in this role is kind of inconsistent throughout the series, but she's the one who's like, when everyone's laser focused on one thing that she could point out, hey, we're like, we're forgetting this other thing. Um, or, you know, she reads someone's emotions and realizes that there might be another possibility to what they've already considered. Yeah, it's a really good, like, it's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, this is why you should have someone on your senior staff whose job is to like, pay attention to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like her job is to look for other perspectives and take care of people. Like, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. 
So they go into uh, the conference room and they discuss their options. They don't have a lot. Uh, Yar and Worf want to fight. Um, seems, seems That seems right for it them. It does. But actually, I was wondering, is this the first time we've seen this side of Worf specifically? I couldn't remember. Like, did we see that side in, the, uh, in, in Farpoint? Or well, he was, he was missing from the entire last episode, right. so that was that was part of it. This changes the average, but um, yeah, that's a good point. Like I was thinking, he would probably be making the same input uh, in the conference normally anyway, because mm-hmm. that's usually his thing. It's like, well, let's let's, fight. let's shoot them. Yeah, you know, that's because that's, that's, that's warp. That's how he rolls. Yeah, and Troy wants to talk, and she points out, like, yes, the Ferengi did fire on us first, but we were chasing them, so like they may have fired on us in defense. So yeah. let's not just fire back at them. Um, and no one else has any ideas. He like specifically asks, he's like, Riker, what do you think we should do? And Riker's like, well, I think all the options have been listed. <laughs> so, right. and, and really, yeah. I guess, guys, that's the only two. You can fight or you can not fight. <laughs> those are, those yeah. are the two options. Um, so Picard, he tries to, to contact the Ferengi and he talks about like terms of surrender, but as he's, after he says that, they respond back, and it turns out that they are also stuck in that force field. They think that the Enterprise has them, so they're talking. They think they're talking about the terms of their own surrender. Right. It's a it's a nice a nice little twist, um, and kind of and shows that yeah, you, you should listen to Troy because she said it might not be the Frangie. Um, yeah. So. Uh, Picard kind of like pretends that reception is really bad. He like cuts and then like he, he like cuts cuts the line to the to the ship and then like opens the frequency again and comes out and basically says that um, we'll have to communicate visually. And we get the big reveal, yes. the Ferengi reveal. Yeah, the, these and I, it's it's so funny to me because I my understanding is the original plan was for these these characters, this, this species to be like the main villain of TNG. Yeah. And I guess they were trying to find, I guess, I guess the idea was that we're trying to think of an ideological antithesis to the Federation. So we know the Federation has done away with money. Right. I, they don't really explain how exactly, but okay, cool. Yeah. And, you know, it's society that has met everyone's basic needs. Um, there isn't the same, like, drive for acquisition of wealth and stuff. And so we, we based on those ideas, we create uh, the Ferengi. So now you and I talked about this a little bit before and we did some homework on it. Um, but, you know, this is our first visualization of the Ferengi. And we have a little bit about, you know, what they are, are what they're supposed to be. They're like greedy and they're, they're, they're traitors or they're capitalists. Um, so I guess the question was like, this has come up in Star Trek fandom is whether or not the Ferengi are actually like, uh, supposed to be portrayed in an, are they anti Semitic? Like, are they supposed to be a, like space Jews yeah. in quotation marks? They're, they're like, a, are, are they like a Jewish stereotype? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I, I come from a, a Jewish family or part, part of my family is Jewish. Um, and I don't know that that gives me like more authority to say yes or no. I think that like they're, so, so, okay. So basically they're like these little bald men with funny noses. And if you want to, and, and who care a lot about money over, yeah, over and, everything else. And like, 
and yeah, some character, some people have argued that they they look like anti-Semitic characters. Yeah, and so I mean, well, yeah, like if you're gonna if you're gonna describe like offensive Jewish stereotypes, like yeah, you kind of got it right there. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's kind of the and and so so yeah, I think that definitely is an issue with with the portrayal of the Ferengi. I think as the series progressed, and certainly as Deep Space Nine progressed, we got to see a lot more depth to these characters and mm-hmm. i would say that like in in deep space 9 ferengi to me really like that just seems like north american capitalism yeah and and i think um like iris steven burr who is himself jewish touches on this a little he's bit he's a too. writer so a right quote on from, deep space 9 it was one of the writers yeah but not like not one of the original writers that came on board and so like i don't know like the I don't know if the original costume designers or character designers had any intent there. And so I, I, I don't, I can't really speak to that. But people who came in afterwards tried, I think, to steer the characters so that they were talking about, like you said, like 20th and 21st century humanity. And so he says in this case, like, Ferengi are, are us. That's the gag. The Ferengis are humans. They're more human than the humans in Star Trek because they're so screwed up and they're so dysfunctional. They're regular people. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that you definitely see that later on. I think like, okay. So, I mean, I will say I come from a Jewish family, but it's also like my Jewish family is European Jewish, um, not North American Jewish. So there are a lot of, uh, like North American Jewish customs and kind of like cultural, um, what's the word? Like touch points almost that are not at all familiar to me because that just wasn't what I grew up with. I mean, there are also a lot of European Jewish customs that are not familiar to me because I did. I'm come from a Jewish family, but not observant. So that part, that's not something that I have explored in a lot of um, depth necessarily. Um, but so, mm-hmm. so I can't say that, like you know, as as a Jewish. As, as an authority on Judaism and, and Jewish customs and, and culture, yes, this is anti-Semitic. No, it's not anti-Semitic. I think I would say, yeah, it is, like personally. Um, I think, I think, I think it definitely the, it's similar to, and I don't want to like compare, um, I, I don't want to compare like experiences, but I think similar to, um, in the previous episode where you've got this episode that maybe it wouldn't have been racist if the characters hadn't, if if the the people on this planet hadn't all been black, like maybe if the Ferengi had looked different, then they would have come across as just like capitalists and not space Jews or not Jewish stereotypes. But, uh, but given how they look, combine that with the aspects of, 20th 21st century north american he- capitalist humanity that they decided to take yeah i think there there is definitely some some anti-semitic uh stereotyping there for sure yeah it raises an eyebrow yeah. for sure i think the important thing is that people are willing to have that conversation and be like hey wait a second like why why did we make those choices yeah you know yeah um and so it's it's not something that stood out like as a kid. There's no way that would not have stood out to me. No, um, yeah. you know, as an adult, I went. I remember like one of my friends, and this is one of the things that, about Star Trek. I think is that 
I I didn't develop the critical view of it because I started watching it as a child and it was as an adult when people started pointing things out to me that I was like, oh yeah, wait a second, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, um, yeah I remember a friend of mine mentioning like, yeah, there's some controversy about Ferengi like being potentially anti-Semitic and I was like, oh wow, like I hadn't really thought of it like that. So, mm-hmm. um, but I think you're right. Like the, the characters are expanded so much more later mm-hmm. that they don't have that same sort of one dimensional yeah. like aspect to them anymore. And I, hopefully that it's the intent there was like, well, we can't really change the physical form of them anymore, but at least let's distance them from like this potential origin. And, and I, I wonder if that's sort of like kind of circling back now to our conversation earlier when we were talking about identity. Yeah. I think one of the ways that like racism presents itself is that, um, or, you know, just an attacks on other people is that it's, again, it's like this, it's a one, it's like when we create someone's entire, or we take dissolve or, uh, distill someone's entire identity or connection to a community or to their race or to their sexuality as a one-dimensional thing, mm-hmm. you know, and then we're able to summarize it without any complexity or nuance, um, and then we can dismiss an entire people group that way. Yeah, I mean, I think also, like, as – I think I think when when writers create characters, I think if you – and I'm saying this as someone who does not do that regularly, so – you know, and this is not writing advice. This is just my observation as someone who consumes stories. And mm-hmm. um, But when you create a character that doesn't have a lot of depth, it can be really easy to fall into um, a, a tendency to rely on stereotypes to communicate more to the audience than you're able to actually say. Yeah, like a like a writing shortcut. Yeah. So if you yeah. if you show characters that look like Jewish stereotypes, then your audience, if they have that stereotype formed in their mind, which you know, a lot of us have stereotypes in our mind because they're very pervasive. So if you if you write a character that looks like a stereotype, your audience will likely fill in the blank. And right. that is a lot faster than creating this whole character and then in deep space nine when we had like multiple ferengi who were like regulars on the show they didn't need the audience to fill in the blanks because they didn't have blanks because these were fully fledged characters and that was not the case with the ferengi on tng so and i think that that's something that writers need to be really really careful about yeah, because representation is so important. Yeah. Right? And that's that's like one of the big ongoing conversations, especially lately with uh, a push toward a more diverse cast in science fiction, like looking at Star Wars, looking at Star Trek over the last little while, and people saying, well, like, why is this such a big deal? You know, you get the like those choices sort of thrown away as just being part of like SJW agenda, blah, blah, blah. And But people who haven't been represented in movies are, are, could look at these movies and see someone that looks like them. Like the the talk, like the discussion about that is that representation mm-hmm. is so important, and that actually some of that research went into how we did science outreach. Um, uh, when I was working at another science institute, uh, out, outreach institute here in Vancouver, but when we were talking, like I was doing some research on this, and it was so important because they said one of the 
best ways to reduce the attrition of of young especially uh young women and girls um and especially young women and girls of color from science is that they are able to find someone in their respective field who looks like them you can reduce the attrition of that of that demographic by up to 40 percent um and so if they can see that there is um you know, if anyone can see that there's someone that looks like them in a thing, they're more likely to be able to say, hey, I can do that. Yeah. Now, then look at the abundance of white male representation in media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how could you not think that, oh, yeah, I can do anything. Right. right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So and then when, yeah. when your representation kind of gets stuck in these stereotypical um, realms, then it's it's actually like quite complicated, I think, because audience members can see that and say like, okay, well, that's, maybe that's not great representation, but at least I'm seeing myself. Yes. And that's, and that yeah. that's something I think to be that, that you need to be really careful about. Yeah. Because how are you constantly portrayed yeah. then or consistently yeah. portrayed? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, just to, to end on that, there's another quote from Armin Shimmerman right. himself, who is also Jewish and played a, uh, several for yes, he He plays one in this episode. In this episode. So he said, in America, people ask, do the Ferengi represent Jews? In England, they ask, do they represent the Irish? In Australia, they ask if the Ferengi represent the Chinese. The Ferengi represent the outcast. It's the person who lives among us that we don't fully understand. Starships do not make Star Trek. Hope makes Star Trek. That's it? I mean, I I think that that's important, like that, that these characters were not universally seen as... Jewish stereotypes. I think that that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. I don't know that that makes it less anti-Semitic. Um, I think that they were they were kind of painted in such broad strokes when they first arrived that um, that it, yeah they they relied on stereotypes of some kind. Yeah, so. yeah, and so I think like if you know always in Star Trek in a way, the idea was that. I, I think it's important if you were to create a show like that and creating a show like that is remembering that any alien that you come across, we're, the show is supposed to be representing an element of humanity, not a specific people group, right, but humanity right. in general. Yeah. And so I can understand where something like this is going to backfire because I think you have to be sure then that if you're going to do that, that you're not caricaturizing or associating with a caricature mm-hmm. or, you know, a racial stereotype, any of the aliens that you're creating. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. So, so back to we, the episode. <laughs> back to the episode. So we get to the conference room. Uh, and Data is talking a little bit about the planet. They've discovered it's an outpost of an ancient empire called the Takan. Yeah. And while getting his fingers stuck in a Chinese finger trap, yeah. which, as you said, we're not sure if that's exactly accurate in terms of the Chinese origin. So in my my brief Googling, I, I mean, I did really try to look and it was hard. Um, the idea of... Uh, these being Chinese finger traps. I mean, the, it, on the internet, it says they were created by someone named Lao Tzu. Um, okay. So a, a Chinese philosopher named Lao Tzu, who um, was around in the the 6th century BCE. Um, and it was as a way of like creating like a, a ladder to escape from a height. But that's like, that's not verified anywhere. That's just like... Wikipedia says and but but there's no so they call them Chinese finger traps and they also talk about like a Chinese philosopher in this episode uh Sun Tzu but uh yeah we don't actually know if these these things are Chinese in any way 
Right. I so my my thought on this is that I think the Chinese finger puzzle is supposed to be an analogy for the episode. Okay. Because the two ships are stuck directly facing toward one another around the planet and they're both trying to pull away from each other but they get stuck yes. and they can't. So they have to come together in order for to break the puzzle on their fingers. You know, it's it's so that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. I had thought of it as like they need to stop pulling away and then they'll be released from this field. But that didn't actually end up happening. But so, yeah, it is like these two ships have to work together. They have to come together to be released. Yeah. To be yeah, released. Like and even even then, they don't really do that because as soon as they get down to the planet, the Ferengi turn yeah, on them anyway. So, but I was like, oh I was like, is that what they're trying to do is show like Data has this toy because they actually have a scene where both ships are trying to reverse away from yeah, each other, right? At one and point. Just, and they, yeah. they get stuck. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, the whole episode is supposed to be this puzzle, this figure yeah. puzzle. But anyway. I will say yeah. Data reminds me so much of so many kids that I've taught in this episode. Like there's a part where Picard goes off on his little mini tangent about France and then Data starts talking about flags and Picard's like, okay, that's enough. And then Data starts to be like, well, you started it. <laughs> yeah, you brought up the conversation. Then yeah. let me talk. And then like yeah. he's like playing with this finger trap while trying really hard to deliver this information. No, it's never explained why he has this. <laughs> no, like where oh, it even no, came no, from? Oh, no, no, actually, sorry, it is. Because Riker, oh, Riker okay. shooed these kids out of the conference room. Oh, yeah, yeah, Who right. knows why the kids were there? That's super weird. But he shoes them out, so they must have left this finger trap they behind. left the analogy or the <laughs> they metaphor. They left a metaphor behind. They left us. the metaphor behind. Um, Find it. So anyway, um, so. They also don't use that. They don't use that holographic thing in the conference room very often. No, I was like, oh, well, you should use more of that. Do. That's cool. Yeah. No, yeah. I was like, use the hol- They just stare at the screen instead. I don't yeah. know. Maybe it was expensive to do. It's. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Um, but so they decide they're going to team up with the Ferengi and investigate the planet. And it takes some arguing, but Daemon Tar, who is the Daemon is the title that people on Ferengi ships get, I guess. Um, he decides to send a team down to the planet to meet uh, their team. So Riker and Worf and LaForge and Yar and Data all beam down to this very stormy planet that has like rolling fog and lightning and um, crystals that light up. But they they beam down and they're all like separated from each other. Um, <clears throat> and then the Ferengi, so there are three Ferengi and one of them is played by Armin Shimmerman and he does just a, such an amazing job. He's so good. Um, they They use these like energy whips to knock uh, – Worf and Riker and LaForge and Data unconscious, but Yar is not with them at the moment, so just knocks the forehead. Yeah, they're they're basically glowing pool noodles. Yes, they are. They, that's I think, exactly. I what think they the are. prop actually might be a pool noodle. I, that, I had that exact thought as I was watching it. I was like, they, these are pool noodles. Um, but yeah, yeah, so they knock them unconscious and then they steal their communicators, um, and then. They wake up. They try eating them. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're made of gold. Yeah, yeah. They start like, they're like, hmm, smells like gold, tastes like gold. Um, and then they start fighting with them um, until Yar shows up and she's got a phaser. So she wins the fight. Um, and the Ferengi, we find out that they are surprised to see a clothed human, as they pronounce it. Um, so we learn that they do not that they're they're sorry a clothed a clothed female human so we we learned that their women do not wear clothes do not wear clothes yeah, yeah. 
meanwhile, up in orbit, Enterprise is continuing to lose power. And there's this interesting conversation between Crusher and Picard where Crusher's like, I gave Wesley a sedative. Um, and then Picard's like, he should know the truth. He should be allowed to like face death awake. I think she says and she then, thought about giving. She wanted to give him a sedative. She oh, she wanted to give him a sedative. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then he, he kind of makes, yeah. And then Picard makes a comment. like, he should be facing death awake. And then Crusher asks like, is that a male perspective? Because it, I kind of rolled my eyes when Picard said yeah. that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and then his only response is rubbish. And then just yeah, like, walks away. Yeah, and then it just drops. Uh, yes. Yeah. Again, very, yeah, there are a lot of these topics that are like picked up and then just left in this episode. Yep. Um, but I, again, it was, you know, similar to uh, what we've seen in with Crush over the last couple episodes is kind of calling Picard out on sexism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because he like had already suggested in previous in encounter in Farport that, that she should leave if she's uncomfortable working with him. And she's like, no, you leave basically. Yeah. Um, and now he comes in her and he's like, well, they should face death. And, you know, he's saying that to a doctor who literally faces death all the time. Yeah. Like that's her job. Yeah. Her job is to deal with death constantly. So, I mean, not that he has it as well as a, as a captain, but like, it just seems like this, it's kind of this macho kind of statement yeah, to me. Yeah, and also he's talking about, like, a 17-year-old. And, yeah. I mean, 17-year-olds, in a lot of ways, they've got a lot more going on inside their heads than people tend to give them credit for. But also, like, they're also <laughs> kids. <laughs> like, Yeah. Uh, and and we know later what Picard was doing when he was that age, so. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. Anyway, so back on the um, planet, the Ferengi try to whip their whips and the Starfleet officers try to fire their phasers, but the energy g- gets diverted to these massive crystals. And Jordy realizes, he can see this with his visor, that like the en- the planet is like an energy collector. Right. Um, and then a head appears out of this like windy energy I, there's no other way i can describe it i don't yeah, know even he's portal portal 63, portal 63. It coalesces into this person yeah. he's like uh and it reminds did you ever watch um uh monty python's holy grail oh it's been a while but yes <laughs> it's, yeah so they have this like wizard that shows up at one point his name's tim and he starts shooting at them and he's like asking them questions he's like what is your quest yeah. Like, what yeah, is yeah, your yeah. favorite co- it reminded me of that guy I'm like oh man this is Space Tim from yeah. like Monty Python yeah. Space Tim or Portal mm. as they call him Space Tim is better than yeah Portal um, so he's he's a guardian of the Empire of Takan and he yep he doesn't know that his empire was destroyed uh, in a supernova yeah I guess he doesn't have like a system clock he does yeah I guess not he the, the, the empire was destroyed but they forgot to tell this outpost well, I guess I couldn't tell anyone because they were destroyed. Uh, yes. But I was thinking, like, even my laptop knows what time it is when I turn it on after a while. Whatever. Yes, but I feel like that technology <laughs> did not exist in 1987. And so they could not oh, imagine maybe, yeah. it existing in the 24th That's century. That's possible. Um, so the, the Ferengi, played by Armin Shimmerman, says that the the humans, he, he he refers to them all as humans. This came up when we were talking about Encounter at Far Point, too. They're not all humans. They've got a Klingon and an android right there. Um, That's right, yeah. But he says that the, the humans came to loot the Takan Empire, and he's like, well, if you give us control of our ship, we'll destroy them for you. Um, and they have, they then have, like, a funny discussion where we learn that, like, this this idea, this, this knowledge that they have of Ferengi, that profit is important to them, is 
correct that the Ferengi like value profit above all else. They think it's like basically like a sin to do something that's not profitable. Yeah, he actually suggests that they're barbarians for destroying profit-making opportunities. Yeah. And yeah. and then they they have some like diff- discussion that kind of touches on like the prime directive because um the enterprise or starfleet or the federation has in the past like not intervened in conflicts that they could have solved um because they took place on planets that were not uh that didn't have warp technology and and that's that's part of the prime directive is to not interfere and the ferengi are basically saying like they should have um right so yeah they kind of touch on that and the portal decides to test Riker and he says he will triumph who knows when to fight and when not to fight yeah full circle circle. back to the beginning of the episode yeah I guess we didn't really touch on this because it didn't feel that important at the time but um that that was a that was an important thing at the beginning this Chinese philosopher Sun Tzu who said like it's just as important to know when not to fight as when to fight. And so the portal or space Tim swings his weapon around. It's like a massive axe. I don't even know. He swings it around. I think I think it's a halberd. Is the if I remember correctly to my Dungeons and Dragons days, I think it's a halberd is what it's called. Sure. Okay. He swings his halberd <laughs> around and it comes down like right beside Riker's head. And so but he doesn't move. He just like I guess that's his him not fighting is staying perfectly still. And he says, fear, Riker says, fear is the true enemy, the only enemy. So that's his answer to this strange question that the portal asked. Um, Which is wise. That's a wise yeah, answer. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so, so basically Riker won the test and, um, and the portal is like, okay, yeah, I'll release your ship and restore power. Um, so we cut to the the ship and Crusher calls Picard Jean rather than Jean-Luc. I think this is the only time that that happens. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that never happens. Yeah, kind of like when a couple times in this season, Troy calls Riker Bill. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. This was just working out the they details. They really were, you know, yeah. Figuring it out. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then the portal is is surprised that the Ferengi and the, the Ferengi ship and the Enterprise went from fighting each other to helping each other. To still fighting. To still, yeah, helping but each other. But general idea. Really. Um, yeah. And, and he, he really doesn't think much of the Ferengi. Like, he offers to destroy them. And Riker's got a pretty paternalistic response. Yeah, it is a bit patronizing. Yeah, though. like, he's like, well, then they'll never learn. And, and this is actually, so this is interesting because he really talks about how the Ferengi are very much like what humans were like hundreds of years ago. And I think the idea is he's referring to like the time when this, Us. yeah, like the 1980s yeah. or, you know, late 20th century. Yeah. And so I think that that in some ways does um, kind of lend a little bit of credibility to the idea that like the Ferengi are us. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's kind of the idea is they're trying to hark back to how our own society functioned and what its what its priorities were. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, I actually there's a quote from Picard earlier when when he's talking to the Daemon on the Ferengi ship, and he's I this is great because it's like one of the first times you really see like Picard's diplomacy mm-hmm. come forward, like his his ability as a diplomat. And there's a quote here that I highlighted, and he says. 
they're kind of going back and forth and and talking about like you know the Damon's trying to get back to like the theft of, of property and all this stuff. And finally, Picard's like, I have no desire to discuss property or territory while our mutual issues remain. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's really smart actually because I think like right now we are having those conversations. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to like mutual issues around human rights, the conversations keep going back to like property or territory. You know, when we start talking about like, like people are rioting because their human rights are being impinged upon. And everyone's like, yeah, but the ridings are causing like damage to target. Right. And yeah. Right. And you're like, wait, that's totally not even the point right now. Like that's not even important. Um, So I think like we get like bogged down in the value of stuff so much that we forget about like that there's mutual issues we need to solve the same thing goes for climate change i find as well like when we talk about wanting to fix the planet like we're all on it together we have these mutual issues and yet people are always like yeah but the economy needs to survive and we can't make these changes that big or infrastructure changes that quickly so um anyways i just thought it was like an important quote it's stuck in my head that picard says it is yeah and i think that that's yeah, that's totally that's totally true and that that is really like where we are and where we need to redirect our focus that it's not about like property or or what was the other thing he said? Property and or territory. Yeah, property and territory. Yeah. It's about like it's about staying alive. Like Yeah. <laughs> and you know, people's lives are in danger. Let's not worry about the money or the the yeah. stuff. Yeah. Or the stuff. I think, and and actually, like, we, we didn't say this at the beginning again, because, like, it <laughs> didn't seem that important, but it is. I mean, the whole reason they were chasing the Ferengi was that they, there was some piece of equipment that the Ferengi stole that belongs to the Federation, yeah. and then they get it back at the very end, so. It was a, yeah, an energy converter. Yeah, T9 um, energy converter. T9 energy converter. So, then at the end, uh, Jordy now has his fingers stuck in the trap. Yeah. And Picard gives him um, a command to move the ship and he can't get himself out. And Data leads over. And I thought this was such a missed opportunity. Instead of taking the trap off his fingers, he just hits the button this for it. This is him. like the, and the I was difference like, between Data and Jordy. When Data had his trap in the finger or had his fingers in the trap, Jordy like helped him get out of the trap. When Jordy's got his fingers in the trap, Data's like, don't worry, I can press your buttons for you. I can press <laughs> I, I think Picard may have got the trap off of Data's fingers oh, the first time. Oh, was it? Okay. But yeah, I, I just thought like it would be it would be a good moment for Data to show that he's like learned a thing. Yeah. So it is now helping his friend. And the whole idea was that the episode is about people's potential to grow and learn and change. But then he just goes and does it for <laughs> them. And you're like, oh, okay, yet. fine. And they also yeah. um, decide as a parting gift to the Ferengi, they send over a bunch of those finger traps, which seems needlessly petty, but is kind of funny. Yeah, it is, it is a bit yeah. funny, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's, that's where the episode ends. That's, that's it. it. That was, that was, uh, that was deep. That was, yeah, we went all kinds of places that, that I would say the episode didn't necessarily go. <laughs> no, but it, it kind of like, it touches on some Yeah, of it does. Things. And I think that's and... one of the things that I, I really like about talking about Star Trek, um, especially with you, because I think you like doing this as well, is that, you know, the, the episode doesn't have to take us there for us to, for us to go there. <laughs> No, and and what I get out of the episodes often changes, like, you know, regarding what's happening in the world, like in the context or like in my own life. And so I think you can go through. That's one of the reasons I enjoy watching these episodes over and over and over and over again is I get something different out of it each time. Mm -hmm. And it's been a lot of over agains. Yes, so many, so many. Although I will say for me, like, I have not watched season one episodes that often. Um, They, I mean, they don't tend to be as 
um, they don't tend to hold my interest in the same way that later seasons do. Um, yeah, I don't know if they have the same rewatchability. They, I don't think they do. It's it sometimes feels like a it's a you know it can be a bit cringy sometimes. Definitely like with the naked now or things like that. Yeah. Um, but there there is the one thing I I love about this episode, and I feel like I have to go into a bit more detail about it is Armin Shimmerman as that Ferengi. Um, I -hmm. think he is just such a phenomenal actor. When I was watching uh, Deep Space Nine all the way through for the first time a few months ago, I was just like, I feel like I was texting you like every every other day being like, oh my goodness, like Armin Shimmerman. Yeah, I was was very excited for you that you got to do that. You get to watch it through and like experience it. I I was like, like, oh, you're gonna have such a good time. I feel like half of my texts were about like, other things like all sorts of things and the other half were about how good Armin Shimmerman is as an actor <laughs> yeah and, and like it also DS9 also does a really good job of showing where the Ferengi are going to be brought to yeah. and fleshed yeah. out and you know and making them which I think is important and I, I think Star Trek shows its strength where it starts to show diversity within other alien races yeah so, like, not everyone is going to be a warrior in the Klingon society. Right. Not everyone is a trader or capitalist in Ferengi right, society. Yeah. And they show that, like, all the societies have different people. Yeah. That's what I really loved about even the fact that they humanize I, – I use humanize in quotation marks – but humanize even the Jemadar yeah, in yeah. Deep Space Nine. That they're not, they're not just all soldiers. They actually create beings that you can empathize with mm-hmm. and – and that's, I think those are some of the strengths of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But um, so to go back to Armin Shimmerman a little bit, that in this episode, the way the Ferengi behave is so odd. Like they're just like jumping up and down and they're like, I, I, I read one description that's like basically they're like a bunch of hyper gerbils or like hamsters or something. Like they just can't, <laughs> yeah. they just can't stop jumping and like climbing on each other. And, Kissing and Yeah. And, and that stuff. was, from what I understand, that was a direction that was given to them. They were told to behave that way. Um, but Armin Schimmerman was so embarrassed by it. He like he was like, that was terrible. I don't know if he was embarrassed like for himself or if he was just like, I can't believe I had to do that. That I'm not sure. But that he like in playing Quark in Deep Space Nine, he was like trying to atone for his horrible portrayal. I think he like more than made up for it. Like I even think in this he is acting ridiculous, but I think he just He's so, when he's talking about like these, you know, these 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 humans came to loot your empire and will destroy. Like I really believe him as a character. He doesn't come across as a stereotype to me. Yeah, they and so even then, there's some groundwork that's laid. Like actors that had to do had to work with not a lot yeah. <laughs> with these characters that still try to make something out of them. Yeah. So I, it's definitely to their credit. Yeah, yeah for sure. Cool. cool. What's uh what's what's coming up next week? Next we week we will be discussing where no one has gone before. That's oh. that's an interesting one. So stay tuned. That's where they go they go really fast and go nowhere where they no go one has where gone before. Literally no one has gone before. Uh, that's right. Wesley Crusher will I'm feature excited. prominently. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving us a stellar five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram at firstlinkpod or send us an email 
at firstlinkpod at gmail.com to let us know what you thought. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And remember, fear is the real enemy, the only enemy. <laughs>